0: This morning we're going back into the Old Testament and we're going to take a look at a, an ongoing saga there with Samuel. There's some problems in the land, some of the same types of problems that we have in America today, but uh, we're going to be talking about seeing people as God sees them. Seeing people as God sees them. And that means looking for the potential that may be there in people that you might think wouldn't have much potential. Seeing people as God sees them. Now our emphasis today is going to be that as we seek God and meditate on His Word, we're going to understand that God oftentimes, oftentimes uses insignificant situations, those days when it seems like nothing is happening, insignificant people in the eyes of the world to develop the message that He would have in our lives. And you can probably think back to some incident in your life or some situation where God used something as a turning point that uh, really you didn't see what He was doing at that time. Famous last words. If I had known what the Lord was doing, I would have tried to cooperate with Him a little better. Well, we can look into His Word and learn how He works because His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are are not our thoughts. So our key verse is going to be 1 Samuel 16, 11. There is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. You know who we're talking about. Now, there are three common errors that Christians make, people make, with regard to what God is doing in your life. I'm not going to write them on the board because you'll easily remember them. First is looking at the outward appearance in circumstances. Everything's falling apart. Everything is caving in, even as Mark was talking about there with the disciples in the New Testament. It's Friday and everything is really looking badly, but Sunday is coming. Looking at the outward appearance in circumstances. Second thing would be Looking at the outward experience, at the outward appearance of people. Looking at the outward appearance of people. Just checking out some guy and fitting him into a mold that I may have in my own thoughts. And the third thing would be overlooking little people. Overlooking little people. Now, when I say little people, I'm not talking about children necessarily. I'm not talking about uh, midgets or people that are short in stature, necessarily. I am talking about people who may seem insignificant in the eyes of the world. That could be the janitor or the maid. That could be the garbage man. That could be the greeter at some store. That could be the guy who does the dirty work out on the farm or that could be the little brother or the little sister. We just take a look at these people. We kind of take them for granted. But we don't think that they would have the power or the prestige or the position to do something that would be great or that God would use as a turning point. We're going to see one of those people today. You know who it is. Dr. Francis Schaefer I wrote an interesting little book. No little people. And of course, no little places like Bethlehem. Just a little bitty village. No one gave much thought to. Well, here's what he says. Nowhere more than in America are Christians caught up in the 20th century syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I am consecrated, there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. This is not so. Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but He even reverses this, especially in the teaching of Jesus. He tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places, but all such emphasis is of the flesh. To think in such terms is simply to hearken back to the old, unconverted, egoist, self-centered me. This attitude taken from the world is more dangerous to the Christian than fleshly amusement or practice. It is the flesh. Well, that's an interesting observation. I think that is probably true with regard to the way that most people see things. So occasionally, the old nature does affect our thinking. And when it does, we kind of tend to falter under the burden of difficult circumstances because we don't see God behind the curtain working in those circumstances. We tend to look at successful people and think if we could only enlist them for the job, everything would be okay. Do you believe that in the news today? The presidential candidates? Maybe there's some element of truth in that, but that's the way we tend to evaluate all kinds of things. And we fail to notice the little people who are significant in God's eyes and whom God may want to use to accomplish something in our lives. Now, let's take a look at that first category looking at outward appearance in circumstances. We're in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel the prophet is grieving over what has happened in his nation. His nation, earlier in the day, has rejected Samuel and his sons. Now, it was true that his sons were bums. But the people said, we demand a king, one who can lead us like the nations. One who can throw out the first baseball at the beginning of baseball season. One who can lead the parade downtown Jerusalem. One who can lead the army forth to victory. All those things. And we don't want these guys that are your sons that were living in immorality. Even connected with their official duties at the tabernacle. So it was true that the people needed better leadership. Samuel was old. And of course, uh, his sons were trained as the priest. God did have in mind better leadership, but the people demanded it, getting a little bit ahead of the game there, ahead of God's timetable. So God said, okay, you want a king? We'll give you a king, King Saul. And of course, Samuel told them what it would be like under King Saul. And you remember the story of King Saul. He kept cutting corners, offering the sacrifice too soon, didn't kill the Amalekites, all kind of things, conjuring up the ghost there with the uh, uh, witch at Endor. He just didn't get it all the way through. And finally God said, okay, we're taking the kingdom away from him and we're giving it to someone else. But Samuel now, while Saul is still alive, is grieving because of the circumstances surrounding Saul's leadership and the way Israel has gone down under that. Now that word mourn that is used there, it's a primitive root. It means to lament. It means to grieve here because of the poor leadership. And that's a natural response because we see in Proverbs 29:2 when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice but when the wicked bear rule the people mourn but the lord in essence said to samuel stop looking at the outward appearance i've got something else for you here this is first samuel 16:1 and the lord said unto samuel how long will you mourn for saul seeing i have rejected him from reigning over israel Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for me a king from among his sons. A new king. Well and good. But by now, Samuel is so caught up in the circumstances that he is beginning to be fearful. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Going to anoint a new king? That's never going to do. Saul will remove my head from my body. Now, in Scripture, we see a lot of people that didn't obey God, but Samuel finally did obey, and he went. And when he went, he overcame his fear. We have a tendency to evaluate people and situations by how they look today. How does it look today? It doesn't look so good today. Here's a young man. His potential doesn't look so good today. But isn't it great that God doesn't evaluate us on today? The way we look or what we do. Now, He does evaluate us on a day, but not today. He evaluates us on one of Christ's days. The day that He died on the cross. So we have to remember that we have a bad day occasionally. We may have a whole bunch of bad days in a row. Christ had a bad night in the Garden of Gethsemane. There wasn't any sin involved there, but you remember it was a pretty rough evening as he was praying that this cup of the crucifixion might be removed from him. So praise the Lord, it was a bad day on Friday, but Sunday's coming, a very good day. Now if God is not evaluating people on their outward appearance on today then perhaps we had better not do that either. Unless you're in a position of authority and you have to um, perhaps help that person to get over their bad day and get on to a better day. So we want to see the potential for what God's doing. God's plan for Samuel seemed to alleviate his fears. Look in verse 2, chapter 16. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And he did now this problem of looking at the adverse circumstances and becoming fearful is not unique. Because when Samuel drove into Bethlehem in his old military jeep with his adjutant general flag flying, the people probably said, uh-oh, here comes the judge. I wonder what he's going to do. The king probably sent him to confiscate all our lands and put us in jail. And they were filled with fear. The elders were fearful. Samuel did that which the Lord had spoken, came to Bethlehem. This is verse 4. And the elders of the town trembled at His coming, and they said, Do you come peacefully? Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-eight: When the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Oh no, here He comes. He's coming to get us. But Samuel said, Peacefully am I coming. I've come to sacrifice unto the Lord. This is verse 5. Sanctify yourselves, come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. Now Samuel, who had mourned over the outward appearance of the circumstances, now moves into the second error. And that would be misjudging people according to outward appearance. So, here we go. Outward appearance in people. First 1 Samuel 16.6 It came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab. And he said, Woo, look at this guy, the firstborn. Big, strong, strappling guy. Surely this must be the Lord's appointed. And the Lord said, Nope, not that one. You got it wrong. Bring in Abinadab. Abinadab comes in. Pretty good looking guy. Maybe this is the one. Nope, bring in Shammai. Maybe this is the one. Finally, Samuel says, is that all the sons you've got? Because God has rejected every one of them. And then, what does Jesse say? Jesse says, I've got one more little boy and he is out keeping the sheep. Now what did Jesse forget? He forgot little David. David. One of those little people at that time. Just a boy out tending the sheep. Now this is bad. They've all sat down for dinner, formal dinner, and they've got their napkins tucked in and they have forgotten one guy. That would be like my family going to eat with the Thompsons and uh, we're all sitting down there, sat down at the table and uh, suddenly uh, we, somebody remembers that Nate is out feeding the chickens out there but we say i oh, did forget about him we'll just go ahead and eat and we we'll go ahead and eat without nate that would be terrible but that's what happened here with jesse because jesse thought that little david didn't count in this important lineup with the judge and the prophet he was least in his father's estimation now that word in the hebrew can mean youngest Least, it can also mean insignificant. So for Samuel 16, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, Is this all the sons you have? And he said, There remains the youngest, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him. We will not sit down until he comes. So he sent and brought him in. And he had a bronzed complexion being out there with the sheep in the wilderness. And he was bright-eyed and good-looking. And the Lord said, anoint this guy, he is the one. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And I don't think anybody knew what was going on except Samuel and David. I think Samuel probably whispered to him, you're going to be the king, I'm anointing you. But it's obvious that the brothers didn't know, isn't it? Because of the way they treated him. Now, if we knew somebody in here was going to be the next king, how do you think we'd be treating that guy? Maybe David Dumas. If we knew David was going to be the king, we'd probably be pretty nice to David. Not that we aren't nice to David, but we might give him a little special attention if he were going to be the king. So the brothers didn't know. Uh, We'll see that a little later. So we're overlooking now the potential of little people. Samuel, Jesse, the brothers, later Saul, they all overlooked the potential of this guy who was just a measly shepherd in their opinion. But look out. Verse 13, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, Eliab would not have made a very good king, the oldest brother, because... I think we'll see it. Yeah, I had a lot of pride. Fast forward now to the battlefield. Oh, excuse me. Fast forward to the field, the Valley of Elah. And there are two armies camped out there. On this side of the mountain would be the Philistine army. On this side of the mountain would be the Israeli army. And the valley in between Now, these guys had a lot of respect for each other. Because 20 years before, the Israelites had been fighting the Philistines, and the Philistines won the battle that day. And the Israelites came home and said, you know, back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, they said, you know, probably we lost the battle because we didn't have our mascot with us. And they said, yeah, let's take the Ark of the Covenant out there. And they did, and the next day, they really got a in that day, lost 30,000 infantrymen, and they lost the ark. And that was a very sad day. And then a long time passed, and then in chapter 8, Samuel began to preach to these people about their sin, because what caused all that was they turned away from the Lord. And they worshipped Baal, and they worshipped other gods. And so everybody gathered to a place called Mizpah in Israel. And they had a national revival there. And the people repented. And the Philistines, their reconnaissance guys, told them, all the whole nation is gathered there to Mizpah, something's up. So the Philistines got their army together to come and attack while they're there having their church service. What about that? But when Saul got his army and was ready to meet the Philistines, it said the Lord thundered against them and a mighty thunderclap exploded among the Philistine army and it scared them to death and they took off running down the road and the Israelis won a great victory that day. At least the Lord won it for them. So you see, each army had respect for the other army. And they didn't want to come down in the valley because they would lose the high ground advantage and the other ones could be just shooting down at them or charging or whatever. Always better to have the high ground in the military. So what do you think the Philistines decide to do? They decide to begin psychological warfare. Do you know what that is? Who was that guy down in Panama that we turned on the big speakers and started blasting Rock music in there, and you remember what was that guy's name? No, it was uh, yeah, Noriega. Yeah, Noriega. That was the guy. I finally had to come out that rock music was blasting his ears. so the, um, the Philistines have a great champion, and this guy, according to the Bible, if you believe a cupid, a, a cubit. Is 17 and a half inches, then this guy was over nine feet tall. Now, some people say that, well, he wasn't really that tall. He was really only about six feet nine. But I don't believe that. If he were only that tall, then he would be just a little bit taller than King Saul, you remember, was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. And they wouldn't have been so afraid of him, I don't think. think. But I believe that Goliath was a big guy. And uh, many times, a giant would not only be tall in stature, but he would be a big, burly guy. And this guy was a warrior and had a tremendous reputation. But now, to move along with the story, David comes from home on a mission. And his mission is to bring provision to his brothers who are at the battle. Because Saul didn't have a big um, kitchen uh, core there. Uh, They needed help from the home folks to supply the army with food. So David brings the food to the battleground. And Eliab gets on his case the minute that he sees he's there. What are you doing? You've only come to see the battle. David is thinking, what battle? All I see is two armies camped out here. Who's with those scroungy sheep back in, the, back in the wilderness? You think you're really hot stuff. What are you doing out here? And Eliab probably forgot something else too. He not only forgot to thank David for the groceries, he probably forgot to ask the blessing when they sat down to eat them. Eliab is a guy who falls into that category who fail to see the significance in this little guy being a younger brother. So while David is there, the giant comes out. And the giant begins to yell his daily taunt. It's been going on for 40 days. And you can see how, uh uh-oh, the giant is um, a little wary of what happened last time here. Sometimes he falls down. At any rate... He's out there railing against Saul and Saul's God. And uh, David hears him. And David says, what in the world is going on here? And some men in the army say, yeah, anybody that kills him gets a great reward and Saul's daughter as well. Evidently, his daughter didn't look like Saul, but uh, she was probably a lovely young lady because this was going to be Pretty good reward. So David is thinking about that. And he hears the taunt. And David can't stand it. Because he sees things as God sees them. Not as the men in the army see them. And finally, David says, Hey, I'll go and fight the giant. But remember now, most of the people there, including the king, they see things the way men See them. And here's what he says. He said, You can't go. You're just a boy. He is a grown man, a powerful man. And not only that, you're just a shepherd. This guy is a warrior. And not only that, but he's had experience in fighting men, fighting people. And David says, Oh, I've killed a lion and a bear trying to molest the sheep, but. Saul said, well, I don't think you can do it. But, if you want to try it, take my armor. Now, David was pretty sharp. We always think of David as the gross underdog in this story, but he was pretty sharp. And he realized that if you got on all that armor, you're not able to move very quickly. You're not very agile if you got on that armor. The giant has on armor, And I don't think the giant was really very agile. I think he was just a big lumbering guy that went crashing through there and did whatever. So David is thinking. He's looking at the situation. He's thinking, oh, there he goes. He's not very stable. He's thinking the army guys, Saul's army, they're thinking that the giant is defying the armies of Saul but I see that he's defying the armies of the living God. Those guys are thinking this giant is too big to hit. If you hit him, he's going to crush you to powder and chop you in mincemeat with that mega sword that he carries. David is thinking, this guy's too big to miss. Look at the size of this target that I've got. But there's another part of that that I think we don't normally think of, but uh, David, I think, is thinking of it. And that is, there are three types of military combatants in ancient military warfare. One would be the infantry. That's the foot soldier. The guys with the sword and the spear and the shield and so forth. And they're going to be in hand-to-hand combat. The next would be the cavalry. Not the calvary, that's where Jesus was crucified. The cavalry. And those guys were going to be mounted on horses or camels, and they were going to have an advantage because they would be up above you fighting down, and beside the horse might trample you in the process. That's the infantry. But then we had the artillery, and those would be the guys who back behind the lines, the catapult operators, the archers, and the slingers. Now, in ancient warfare, the slingers were very important. You see in Judges 20.16, among all these Benjamite soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. We can't even do that with a rifle today unless you're pretty good and you've got a scope on the thing. And then in 1 Chronicles 12.2, Benjamites, again, ambidextrous Benjamites, they were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling stones and shoot arrows from the bow they were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. So Paul Kriwakzik wrote a book, Babylon, Mesopotamia, and the Birth of Civilization. And he writes about the effectiveness of the sling in ancient warfare. He points out that a baseball pitcher or a cricket bowler can throw a ball at about 100 miles an hour. The record in the major leagues is 105 miles an hour for some pitch that some guy threw on a particular day. Due to the fact that the sling is as long again as the thrower's arm, that will double the projectile speed. So a slinger might be able to throw a stone over 200 miles an hour. Imagine getting hit just with a baseball or a golf ball that somebody threw right there. Now when we say a sling... We're not talking about the um, slingshot type of thing. We're talking about something like this. Of course, this is just a model here. But one end has a loop, and it might go around your hand, or in this case, some of your fingers. And then you hold this other end in your hand, like so. Get those evened up. Let's get a smooth stone from the Ala Brook, which is a dry riverbed most of the year. And that stone goes in there just like that. And then you begin to wind this thing up. you all trust me to do this? <coughs> well, you get it going. And then you let go, and that stone flies out of there. And it seems that uh, many guys started working on this when they were just boys. And they were very... Very accurate. So, back to the guy's book here. The longbow arrow only travels about 134 miles an hour because the flight feathers have so much drag. So, according to Kruwaksic, it's thought that a skilled professional slinger might approach the muzzle velocity of a 45 caliber bullet, which is 150 meters per second. The modern world record distance... For a stone cast from a sling by Larry Bray in 1981 is 437 meters with a 1.8 ounce stone. That's a stone just about that size. That's 1,434 feet. In retrospect, Bray believed he could reach 600 meters with a better sling and lead projectiles. The ancient Romans used lead projectiles. That would be a length of six and a half football fields. Now, you can imagine it takes a lot of power to get a rock going that far. That would be from here to the highway and maybe a little further than that. So these were not toys and these were not this kind of slang. These were a very formidable weapon. And sometimes if you were wearing leather armor, Sometimes the rock or the projectile didn't penetrate the armor, but it hit you so hard that it damaged the internal organs and put you out of the fight. So with this sling, they were very, very accurate. And David is thinking, now the only way that guy can do any damage is if I get within five feet of the guy. Because these hand-to-hand combat infantry guys had to have you right up there. If he used his spear, he only got one throw. And David is a pretty agile guy and he may be able to dodge it. Besides, he doesn't get any further than maybe 20 yards, 15 yards maybe. So he gets there, he winds up, he lets that stone go knowing that he can hit the mark. And of course, God is directing the flight of that stone. And boop, it hits the guy right in the forehead, right there. And he goes down in slow motion. And David uh, runs up, grabs the guy's sword. Actually, his sword was not in his hand, but in his sheath, the Scripture says. He grabs that guy's sword and uh, he operates the grisly business of chopping the guy's head off. And he grabs his head and takes it back to Jerusalem as a trophy. Now we think, ooh, that's pretty, pretty grisly, but... In that day, people say, you killed Goliath? I don't believe it. Oh yeah, here he is, right here. You can see. So there is uh, little David, the seemingly insignificant guy. Dr. Harold Sela tells an interesting story in his book, People Have Made a Difference. I've told the story before, some time ago. Basilio Clark was a nobody. He was born in a no place, Alangapo, Philippines. That's near the Supic Bay, which was once home of the American 7th Fleet. So Basilio's mother was a Filipino lady. His father was a an American Navy serviceman. And they were married, and they had several children, including Basilio. And uh, then the father, unfortunately, was killed in an automobile accident. There wasn't enough food. There wasn't enough provision. So Basilio began running in the street. And soon, he was running with a street gang. And these guys murdered and pillaged at will. Probably some Canaanites were knocking out back there in the kitchen. And uh, so finally, one night, the police surrounded their hideout and they were captured, all nine of them. And the judge said, we're not going to have that kind of behavior here in Manila. We're going to make an example of these guys. We're going to send them to Bilibed Prison and they're going to everyone be executed in the electric chair. It's the death penalty. These guys were scared to death. They had heard stories of the old-fashioned electric chair. They did not want to die in the electric chair. So they made a pact with each other. We're going to do our best to get out of here before the electric chair. And they knew they couldn't get out of the prison. But they found some paint thinner Somebody smuggled in some insecticide. They mixed it up. They all got a cup. They all stood in a circle and they all drank the poison. And eight of them died. But Basilio lived. Now he was blind in prison. He had been a failure in life. Now he was a failure in death. But there was another nobody there in the Philippines. Mama Olga, she was called Mama Olga Robertson, and she ministered in the prison. If you can imagine, kind of like Gladys Oliver, she wasn't afraid of these guys. The Lord told her she went in the prison, and so she was pretty smart. She gave Basilio a radio <clears throat> that only had one station on it, the Far Eastern Broadcasting Gospel Station. So this guy had to do something. He couldn't even read, and he listened to that station, and he was converted. And he got down on his knees and asked Christ to come into his life. And Mama Olga discipled him. And then he began to grow and he repented and began leading others to the Lord. And the president of the Philippines heard about this guy and granted him a pardon. He went back to his hometown and he became Brother Clark, the warm and friendly Baptist pastor who played his guitar and sang so beautifully. Mama Olga continued her work with the nobodies down at the prison. You might pray for her. She is 88 now, not in real good health. She's in the United States now. So how are you going to respond to the little people that come along in life? You'll need the grace of God if you you plan to minister to these people in love. Now I want to close up with a, a question here, a little riddle. Many times we don't notice insignificant things, but who in the world of nature is so completely insignificant that he goes completely unnoticed until he is hungry? This is a vicious killer who has resulted, that his work resulted in the death of 50 million people in the world. One day, my two oldest sons went down to the neighbor's barn. They went into the barn, but they didn't stay very long. Soon they came out running, howling, dancing, because they had been attacked by this killer. There he is. It's the flea. The flea. The flea who feasted on infected rats spread the bubonic plague over Europe that wiped out half the population of Europe in the 1400's. Incredible. If you scratch him, it doesn't do any good. You know why? He's armor plated. You can see the armor there. And many times, that's the way sin is. Oh, it's just a little bite. We don't think it's going to count for anything. But suddenly, there's this terrible disease and it's contagious and it's spreading around. Well, we want to keep in mind what Jesus thought about insignificant things, the widow's might, and insignificant people. People like a little child. Bring a little child here. And He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a little child. And the ninety-nine sheep that were safe in the fold, but the one lost sheep that Jesus went out to say the widow and her offering the little boy who had the lunch Jesus is always focused on whatever's there whatever's available he sees the potential of those things and we want to too let's pray Lord we understand that we need the love of Christ in order to treat people the way they ought to be treated we need the wisdom that You give us through the mind of Christ and through Your Holy Spirit to see the potential of little people, little circumstances, little situations. And we ask, Lord, that we might have great faith and confidence in You because there will be plenty of Goliaths in our lives for us to battle. We pray we might have the faith of David, but that also we might be able to see things as you see them. Help us to be ready with our spiritual weapons. Help us to be skilled in the use of them. And we ask, Lord, for better leadership in this land. And we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.